If you'll turn in your Bible there to Hebrews chapter 8, I want to talk to you this morning about something I've been preaching on in Amarillo at our church for about seven or eight weeks now, and it's a series called Covenant Keeper. It's on the issue of covenant. Covenant is an issue that that generally we don't know a lot about. I'm just saying as as Gentiles, unless you're a, a natural Jewish person and you're raised understanding covenants, most of us really don't have a a lot of knowledge about covenant. And the tragedy there is, is this is a covenant book, and our God is a covenant God. The Bible says that God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. The word covenant occurs in the Bible 286 times in the Old Testament and 33 times in the New Testament. It's a major word in the Bible. Every single chapter of the Bible is a covenant chapter. Every single thing that God has ever done in the human race with people has been done in covenant. Let me say this. For the rest of your life, God will never interact with you in any positive way outside of covenant. Covenant is how God relates to us. That's what the word covenant means. It means a permanent, solemn relationship. It's a very serious relationship. Covenants are about people and binding people together in relationship. As it relates to our covenant with God, it's about a relationship between us and God that binds us together with God in a solemn, permanent type of relationship. And all of us know now that that relationship has made, uh, been made available through the death of Jesus and the new covenant. Hebrews 8, where I ask you to turn there, let's read this, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. Verse 6 of Hebrews 8, it says, and it's talking about Jesus, He has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, now the word them, plural, it means all the Old Testament covenants, because there were many. God found fault with all of them. None of them satisfied uh, his standard for relationship. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Now, all of this scripture here, the book of Hebrews, is written basically now to Jews. It's also written to us. But the writer of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. It could have been Peter or Paul or someone else. But here's what we do know. It's written to Jewish people who were in the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was the Mosaic Covenant, where they had all the laws and all the ritual sacrifices that Israel was born into since the days of Moses, the the people during the Bible times, the Jewish people. That's all they knew was the Old Covenant. The book of Hebrews is written to help a Jewish person make the transition from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. So it's talking here about covenants, And it's talking about the fact that Jesus has made a better covenant. Well, I want to talk about that covenant this morning just to help us understand just the basics about the covenant that we're in with Jesus. Because remember now, every single blessing that God will ever bless you with comes from covenant. When you understand covenant, you understand the Bible. When you understand covenant, you understand God. Every single thing that God's ever going to do with you now is going to be now through covenant. There are always three elements to a biblical covenant that God makes. We need to know what these elements are because it's how we relate to God and how God relates to us. Now, all of these three elements are essential. 
if you take one element out now, you don't have covenant. You, you break covenant. And so understand, the first thing that is present in any biblical covenant is a promise or promises. Now let's go back to Hebrews 8.6 for just a minute. And it says this, He has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Every covenant begins by somebody making promises. In fact, you know, marriage is a covenant. I know your pastor's preached on that. But marriage is a covenant, and when people, I know that people have been married right here on this platform, and when people stand getting married, we make promises to each other that I'll love and cherish you until death, unless death, until death separates us. Is that, you know, I will, I will be here in richer and poorer, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse. We make promises. Without promises being made now, there is no covenant. And the Bible says here that Jesus has made us better promises, a better covenant, and it's based on better promises. Now, remember, it's not one promise. Many promises that Jesus has made us here. Here's what a covenant is. A covenant is agreement between parties, where one person comes up and says, I'll make you this promise if you'll keep your end of the deal. And this is what God has done. God, God hands his hand out to us, and he says, listen, I am willing to come into a relationship with you, and the relationship that I want to come into to you with is based on these promises right here. God relates to us based on His Word. These are God's covenant promises. Ladies and gentlemen, this isn't just a Bible. This is God's covenant Word. These are God's covenant promises that He cannot break. If we do our part, God will always do His part. Now let's read this scripture, and this is uh, in Hebrews chapter 6. And this is talking about the promises of God. Again, remember, Hebrews is talking about making the transition into the New Covenant. Verse 11, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The writer of Hebrews is saying, you need to get the promises of God. Don't be sluggish about this. For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong consolation who have fled for refuge, to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let me just kind of interpret that for you just a minute. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is, you need to get these promises. You, you need to, to stir yourself up to make sure that you get these promises. Because he says this, God makes promises... And whenever an oath is being made, whoever is making the oath finds someone greater than themselves to swear to. An example of that is if you and I went to court and we were uh, you know, going up on a witness stand, they would put a Bible in front of us and we would put our hands on the Bible and we would swear to tell the truth, so help us God. Because when you're making an oath, you find someone better and greater than yourself to swear to. But you know something? When God is swearing, how does he swear? You know, there's no one greater than him. And here's what it says. 
He has sworn by himself that he will do what this says. He's giving us strong consolation. That is the anchor of our souls. You know, ladies and gentlemen, this is a shaking world, and every day we wake up, we don't know what's going to happen next. There are very few certain things in this world, but ladies and gentlemen, this is a certain thing. If God ever breaks one word of his promise, he has to curse himself. Because in covenant, if you keep covenant, you're blessed. If you break covenant, you're cursed. It's the, it's the story of the entire Bible. And when God swears by himself, what he's saying is, if I ever break one word that I've sworn in here that I will keep, I will curse myself. And there is not one possibility of God ever cursing himself. There's not one possibility of God ever breaking a promise. And it says that's the anchor of your soul. In all the distresses of life, in all of the challenges of life, the anchor of our soul is God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will never lie to me. He will never lead me on. He will never make a promise and break it. And every single one of us in this life that have promises broken to us by other individuals, but never by God because our God is a covenant keeper. He makes covenant and He keeps covenant. And this is His covenant word and this is your promised land. And you're wondering where your destiny is. Your destiny is right here. You're wondering where your promised land is. Your promised land is right here. And the writer of Hebrews says, Do not become sluggish, but be like Abraham, who inherited the promises of God. Because God swore to Abraham by himself, and he will not change. I'll tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that's good news. That there is a surety in life that what God has promised, he'll fulfill. Second Peter chapter 1. This is what Peter says about the promises of God. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as His divine power has given to us all things. How many things has God given to us? And let me tell you this, He has given them. It's not that He will, He has, past tense. God has already given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Let me say this, there's nothing else. When God gives you everything pertaining to life and godliness, there's nothing else to give. He's given us everything. Through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. What Peter is saying here is the way that God has given us everything is through His promises. We have been given all things by exceedingly great and precious promises that through these things you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Here, here is what Peter is saying. He is saying, God has given us every single thing that we need, and here it is right here. This is your promised land. Let me say this. You know why there are so many promises in the Bible? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. There's, there's well over 700 promises in the Bible. I keep hearing different numbers is why I don't say one number. There's just hundreds and hundreds of promises. You know why there's so many promises? It's because there's a promise for every single area of your life. You will never take a step in this life that there's not a promise there. There's a promise for your health. There's a promise for your children. There's a promise for your finances. There's a promise for your marriage. There's a promise for your, your mind, your emotions, for your past, your present, your future. You will never in this life find a place that God has not placed a promise for you there. He has given you everything that you need pertaining to life and God. It's already been given to you. Where is it? It's in your promised land. Where's that? It's right here. This is the covenant word of God. God wants to make covenant with you this morning, but he can't make covenant with us if we don't believe his word. 
To enter into covenant with God means that we enter into a relationship with Him through His Word. Let me just give you an example. Of it. By the way, it says here that through His promises we become partakers of the divine nature. You know what that means? It means you experience God. That you experience Him. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't want to know about God. I want to know God. I want to experience God. I want to live the rest of my life in His presence. I want to know my God. I don't want to just know about Him. And it says, through His promises, you become a partaker of the divine nature. You experience God. I remember when Karen started stepping out in the promises of God. I didn't have a lot of faith. We made $7,000. I made $7,000 the year that we started giving to the Lord financially. And we had a daughter, and Karen did not work outside the home. She did not have an income. And uh, Karen came home from church. Some preacher preached a message on giving and used some promise out of the Bible, and she wanted to do it. And uh, she wanted to give $40 to the church, and it made me want to throw up. And I said, Karen, my gosh. You know, we were always overdrawn in our checking account. We lived just barely from paycheck to paycheck. And she wanted to give $40 to the church. And she said, well, can I, Jimmy? And I said, well, I guess. You know, I thought, well, I have two choices, go broke or die. God will strike me dead if I say no. You know, so... Going broke is better than death. You know what happened when she gave that $40? We began to experience God. God came into our finances, not through my faith, but through the faith of my precious wife. Our finances began to change. And to this day now, I'm telling you, God is in our finances in our home. We have met God through his promises in our home. About, I don't know, 20-some-odd years ago, 25 or 28 years ago, I started getting little warts on my chin. Little bitty, they were small, but they're right here in my shaving area, and they they spread because you know when I shave. And uh, so I went to the doctor, and I got them burn off, and they came back. I got them froze off, and they came back. I got them scraped off, and they came back. I just went to doctor after doctor after doctor, and uh, no matter what I did, they kept multiplying and they kept coming back. And it was just incredibly frustrating and painful and discouraging. And finally, I went to a doctor in Houston because my brother was uh, down there in. I went to a doctor in Houston, a specialist, supposed to be, you know, one of the best, and I went down there to see him, and he just basically told me, learn to live with it. There's just no way for him to go away. And I went home, and I was just so frustrated and so discouraged. And um, I was sitting one morning, and the Lord reminded me of a scripture in Mark 11 that says, Speak to the mountain and command it to be cast into the heart of the sea. And if you do not doubt what you're saying will come true, it will happen. And Jesus said to me one morning in my quiet time, Jimmy, you walk into the mirror and you look at those warts because they're mountains to you. They may look little to somebody else, but for you it's a mountain. And you command them to get off of your face, and they will. You know, and I'm, I'm, I try to be a reasonable person. And uh, I just thought, I don't know that I can talk to myself in the mirror. I mean, I, I don't know that I can speak to warts. I don't know that I... And, so I went, in, I went into the bathroom, and I closed the door behind me there, and I, I looked at myself in the mirror, and I just I, did, I, so, I felt so stupid. But, you know, when you're real discouraged, kind of when you're at the bottom, you get kind of workable, you know, you'll kind of. So I stood there in the mirror, and I looked at the warts on my face, and I said, get off my face in the name of Jesus. And I didn't have a lot of faith for it. I kind of felt stupid, and the Lord said, you don't stop talking to those warts till they're off your face. And so the next day I came back and I said, get off my face. In the name of Jesus, I command you to get off my face. And I came back the next day and the next day. After four or five days, I was kind of getting good at it. And you know, get off my face. And so 
The tenth day, I stepped into the bathroom. They were all gone. They'd never been back. There's a promise. There's a promise in the Word for you. But you have to step out and believe it. You have to enter into the promised land. God says, I have given you... This is a better covenant based on better promises. Let me just tell you one of the covenant promises God has given you. It's really the only one you really need. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. I'll give you all these things. You know what all those things are? Everything you can name. Every blessing in life that is important to you. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. I'll give you all those things. If you seek God first and His righteousness, there's not one chance in a trillion of Him not doing that for you. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, we have a better covenant based on better promises, and all we have to do is reach out and take our promised land and believe in His Word. The second element of covenant is a blood sacrifice. You do not have a covenant unless there has been a shedding of blood. The word covenant means to cut. You don't make covenant, you don't sign a covenant, you cut a covenant. Literally, if there is not the shedding of blood, you do not have a covenant. Let's go now. This is, uh, this is now in, um, let's see, Matthew 26, 28. Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Jesus says, this covenant is being established in my blood. So we do now have blood sacrifice as a part of the New Covenant. This is Hebrews chapter 10 now, and here's what Hebrews says, beginning of verse 11. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. I want to stop right there, and the, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the Old Testament sacrifices. This is shocking. It really is shocking. Did you know that all the animals, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament, did you know that not one sin was ever forgiven through those? Not one sin. Well, let's just read it again. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. In the Old Covenants, now, the reason that God said that he found fault with all the Old Testament covenants, in the Old Testament there was a mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. You remember they brought the Lamb's blood in once a year and they poured it on the mercy seat. The word mercy seat there is the Hebrew word kapurath. It means to cover. All of the animal sacrifices in the Old Covenant never took away one sin. They just temporarily covered it so that God could relate to man on a very superficial level. God never had an intimate relationship with man in the Old Testament. Just, just very rarely would you find God intimately relating. But you remember what happened when Jesus died? The veil in the temple was ripped from the top to the bottom, and the Spirit of God came out from behind the curtain. And where does he live now? And let me tell you why he lives in us now. This now talks about the ministry of Jesus. This is Hebrews 10 again. But this man, talking about Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. In the old covenants, the blood of heifers and calves and goats and turtle doves and lambs and all those things, all they did was temporarily cover sin so God could do something in his relationship with man. When Jesus died on the sin, 
His blood completely, totally erased sin. And let me give you an example. In, in the church in Amarillo that I pastor there, you know, we minister to a lot of people, and, and a lot of people have, you know, ordinary type of sins, but we, we uh, minister to people who've had abortions and murdered people. We have people who've come out of prison who've spent time for murder or very serious crimes, you know, adultery, real serious type of sins. And let me say this. The wonderful thing about the blood of Jesus is that one time he offered a sacrifice that totally removed sin. It doesn't cover it, ladies and gentlemen. It totally erases it. It's gone forever. The the new covenant is a better covenant because there's better blood that has established the covenant. Let me tell you what this means. The Bible says as far as the east is from the west, God has removed our sins from us whenever we confess our sins and we come to him. You know, the significant thing about east and west is there there are no demarcations to east and west. There is a north pole and a south pole. And if I said to you, I have removed something as far as the north is from the south, you know how far that is. But when the word says as far as the east is from the west, when you confess your sins, and all you have to do according to 1 John 1, 9 is confess your sins, and that means to, to be honest about it, to turn away from sin, God forgives you of that sin and realize in all of eternity he will never remember it again. It is completely and forever gone. It wasn't just temporarily covered. It is totally erased. And now when God looks at you, you're absolutely pure, lily white, and there's nothing to keep him from being in an intimate relationship with you. That is the new covenant versus the old covenant. So let me say this. You know now when you confess your sins... You have to put faith in the blood of Jesus that he's forgiven you. But you know now, when you confess your sins, not only does God forgive you, he forgets the sin. And he relates with you. See, a lot of us think that God is mad at us. But understand this. When you have asked God for forgiveness, not only has he forgiven you, he can't remember what you can remember. See, when God has forgiven you, only two people can remember your sin, you and the devil. And isn't the devil good at reminding us of our sins? And you know why the devil constantly reminds us of our sins? To convince us that the blood of Jesus isn't powerful enough to forgive us. Or if we've repented, that the blood of Jesus isn't faithful enough to forgive us. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you that the new covenant is a fabulous covenant. Jesus Christ hung on the cross and died for our sins. And every single day when we miss the mark and when we sin, We can come boldly to the throne of grace and we can confess that sin and it is forever forgiven and forever forgotten. Somebody say amen. What a deal that is. What a deal that is for all of us who miss the mark and all of us who need more of God, that we can constantly come back and enter into covenant once we've sinned, once we've done something wrong. We can keep coming back and God keeps forgiving us by the blood of Jesus. You have to have a blood sacrifice to have a covenant, and what a wonderful blood sacrifice that God has given to us so that we can have every blessing that he has. There's one more element to covenant, and it's a sign. There's always now a sign when there is a covenant. Let me give an example of this. God made a covenant with Noah, and you remember the covenant that God made with Noah. There was a promise. Anybody remember the promise? I'll never flood the earth again. And what was the sign of that promise? The rainbow. Whenever you see a rainbow, God is keeping covenant. He hasn't done it again. That's, that's what that means. God made a covenant with Abraham and made many promises to Abraham. That he would have descendants as, as many as the stars of the sky, that he would be able to possess the promised land. 
uh, many promises, but the sign of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision. God made a covenant with Moses, and many promises were a part of the covenant with Moses, but the sign of the Mosaic covenant is the Sabbath day. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Now, this is the sign of the covenant. The ring that I wear here, my wedding ring, this is the sign of the covenant. A sign of the covenant does two things. It seals the deal, number one. When the sign is established, it seals the covenant. For example, a couple stands up on a platform like this and is married. There is the exchange of rings. And when I'm performing a marriage ceremony and we're exchanging rings, what we say there is, with this ring, I thee wed. It's one of the last things we do in the ceremony because when that ring slides on, it seals that covenant right there. It also is a continuing sign of good faith. I wear my wedding ring because I love my wife and I'm committed to my marriage. This wedding ring is a continuing covenant sign of my marriage covenant with my wife, Karen. Understand this. Every single time that God makes covenant, there's a sign of the covenant. In the old covenant and the new covenants. But here's what I want you to understand. God is very, very passionate now about covenant signs. When you understand that, you'll understand the Bible better. When God sees the covenant sign, He becomes very romantic. He becomes very passionate, and He blesses. When He doesn't see the covenant sign, it doesn't remind Him of the covenant. When He sees the covenant sign being abused, God becomes angry. And and bad things happen whenever the covenant sign is abused. Let me give you an example of this. In Exodus 4, you remember in the book of Exodus, God shows up to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. They've gone into bondage in Egypt. And he calls Moses now as the deliverer of the children of Israel to take them out of Egypt. And so Moses, uh, God comes and meets with Moses in the burning bush. Reluctantly, Moses agrees to become the deliverer of the children of Israel. Now, several chapters later, in chapter 4, this verse occurs. It says that God... It came to pass on the way, on the way of Moses going down to Egypt, at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. I mean, it's just kind of a crazy scripture, isn't it? Uh, You know, a couple of chapters earlier, God is meeting with Moses, trying to talk him into going down and deliver the children of Israel, and Moses is very reluctant. Finally, Moses said, okay, I'll go, and then God shows up to kill him. Well, the reason that God showed up to kill Moses is because Moses wouldn't circumcise his young son. At eight days old, every Jewish male child had to be circumcised. And Moses would not circumcise his male child. And when God saw that Moses would not bear the covenant sign, he wanted to kill him. And Moses' wife, Zipporah, took a flint knife, circumcised their son, took the foreskin, threw it at Moses, and said to him, You're a bridegroom of blood to me. And it means two things. It means I resent this religion that you've brought into our home that makes us cut our children like this. And number two, this is your job, pal. I shouldn't have to be doing it. Let me just say it. When you're having that kind of a fight, it's a bad one. And just, just for your reference. And so covenant signs are very, very important to God. They're very important to God. You've got to understand it. There are three covenant signs of the new covenant. And, there, and some people say, why are there three? Because there's a Father, Son, and a Holy Spirit that we're in covenant with. There are three signs. Listen, when you bear these signs, and God sees you bearing these covenant signs of the new covenant, first of all, you have to receive the promises of the covenant. You have to believe in the blood of the covenant, and you have to bear the signs of the covenant to walk in covenant properly with God. Those three elements are always a part of covenant. Well, here are the three signs of the new covenant. Number one, the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit 
was in the early church, the sign of the new covenant. When the day of Pentecost came, it was God's sign from heaven that he had entered into a new covenant with his people, the church. Ephesians chapter 1 says this, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Whenever we enter into the new covenant with Christ, God seals it with his Holy Spirit. He sends his Holy Spirit. When Peter went into Cornelius' house, the first church was all Jewish. And when Peter went into a Gentile's home to eat with him and to minister the gospel to him, the saints back in Jerusalem were furious at Peter. And he went back and they said, what do you mean you've gone into a Gentile's house? And what do you mean you sat down and ate with him? And he said, I went and ministered to them. And as I was preaching the word, the Holy Spirit fell upon them the way he fell upon us. And the saints back in Jerusalem said, well, I guess that Gentiles can be saved. They knew when the Holy Spirit showed up that there was a covenant present. Understand this, and I said this earlier. When it comes to covenant signs, God is very, very passionate. When he sees us respecting his Holy Spirit, not grieving and quenching the Spirit, and inviting the Holy Spirit into our lives and walking in the presence of the Spirit, it is a sign to God that we're operating in good faith to the covenant that he's made with us, and he pours blessing and blessing. When he sees us walking in a respect in the presence of the Holy Spirit, he just he becomes very passionate and romantic and just pours out blessings, power, revelation, a truth, comfort, all the things only the Holy Spirit can bring. But this is what Jesus said in Luke 12:10 about the Holy Spirit. And I want to say it again. When it comes to the signs of the covenant, God is different. He is very, very passionate. Jesus said, you can say something about me, I'll forgive you. Say something against the Holy Spirit, I'll never forgive you. In the early church, two people fell dead. Their names were Ananias and Sapphira. And Peter walked up and said, you lied to the Holy Spirit. Now, none of you, by the way, have committed the unpardonable sin. Don't ever let the devil tell you that. You would never be in church this morning if you had. People who have ever done that, they would never come to a church. They're not interested. But understand this. The Holy Spirit is a covenant sign. And God is very passionate about that covenant sign. Whenever you walk in this life with a respect for the Holy Spirit, understand you are bearing a covenant sign before God that will invoke his blessing. The number two covenant sign is water baptism. It is a very important covenant sign. And here's what Jesus said. Mark 16, 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Jesus puts believing and baptism there along with salvation. Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the Great Commission, that we are commanded to go out and to, to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's Christ's commandment for us individually to be baptized after salvation and for us to go out as a church baptizing people. Colossians chapter 2. And this gives a deeper explanation of what baptism is. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, 
by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, I want you to understand something about baptism because a lot of people think, well, water baptism isn't that big of a deal. You know, I don't need to be water baptized. In the Old Testament, when God made his covenant with Abraham, he said all the, the male children have to be circumcised. What Colossians 2 says is water baptism is New Testament circumcision, but it's not done by a man. It's done by Jesus Christ, and it's done down in the baptismal waters, and it's done in your heart. Now, I want you to listen. Circumcision, male circumcision, is about two things, hygiene and sensitivity, those two things, when a person is circumcised. When you go down in baptismal waters, you come to Christ and you say, Lord Jesus, I come to you. This is the consummation of the relationship with Christ. And you go down in those baptismal waters, and when you go down in those waters, Jesus Christ himself comes down and he takes away a part of you that causes you to be unclean and causes you to be insensitive to him. When you have not been water baptized after salvation, it means you have a greater difficulty saying no to sin, and you have a greater difficulty hearing God and being sensitive to his presence. There is a circumcision that takes place there. And some people say, well, can a person be saved without being water baptized? I want to answer that if I can real quickly. My answer is yes, they can. Like the thief on the cross next to Jesus, he obviously could not crawl down and be baptized. And uh, there are people who receive Christ on their deathbeds or in very difficult circumstances. There's just simply not the opportunity to be baptized. Absolutely, a person can be saved without being water baptized. Let me ask you this. What if a person says they receive Christ and they can be baptized, but they won't? Let Let me change the issue here just a second. I'll come back. You know, in marriage, marriage is a covenant that was created by God in Genesis chapter 2, and sex is the covenant sign of marriage. It not only consummates the marriage, it is the continuing sign of good faith in the marriage relationship. It's a very important covenant sign. Let me just say this. Can a couple be married and never consummate the marriage? Let me, let me answer that and say yes. For example, there may be people who physically, they're handicapped. They, they cannot consummate it. There may be a person in the military and they're, you know, they're married long distance, you know, and whatever happens all the time. Or someone's in prison and they're, they're married and there's a physical separation there. Can they be married in God's sight and never consummated? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, you know, if they can't. Let me ask you this question. What if, what if there is a couple and they get married and they live together and there isn't a physical issue there and one of the people in that marriage won't consummate that marriage? What do you think about that? I'm saying if it's a man, I think he's crazy. Hey, never mind. And that's my personal opinion of the whole thing. But, but let me say this. What do you think about a person who says, who says, I want to marry you and be your partner for the rest of our, our lives together. I give you myself and I want to be married to you, but I won't consummate it. What do you think about that? You know what I think? I think there's something wrong. I think there's some very, very high selfishness in that. And I think there's some insincerity. So let me go back to my question. Can a person be saved and not be water baptized? My answer is yes, I do believe that. But let me understand this. If you're saying that you have surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and you won't do the first thing that he's commanded you to do to be water baptized, I think there's something wrong. I think you need to question the sincerity 
of your commitment to Christ. I'm not saying you're not saved. Don't hear me saying that. And God loves all of us the same. I'm not saying He doesn't love you. But it is a covenant sign. I want to talk about this. Circumcision is a discreet thing. When you're walking down the street, you don't know. You just don't know who's been circumcised in this in this congregation this morning. I don't know which of you have been baptized, who of you have been baptized on the bed. I mean, I just can't tell, but God can. When God looks down in this place this morning, He sees circumcised hearts for every person who has been water baptized. He did it Himself. There is a mark on you once you've been water baptized. And every time God sees the covenant sign of baptism, when He looks at you, remember, circumcision is permanent. When you're baptized, it's a permanent thing that happens in you. It's discreet. Only God knows it. And you know it. But it's permanent. And God looks at you and He sees that covenant sign. He says, that's my child. That's my kid there. That's, that's my kid. I want, I want to bless you. Come here. I want to give you something. Every time He sees covenant signs, He becomes extremely generous and romantic. Extremely passionate. When He doesn't see the covenant sign, there's no reminder there. Water baptism. Number three, the Lord's Supper. And I'll close with this. Communion is a covenant sign. 1 Corinthians 11. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Uh, In my blood, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. That means they've died. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. you realize that Jesus gave the cup and the bread, the original cup and the bread, at the Last Supper, and he says, I want you to do this in remembrance of our covenant. This is my body. The bread represents the body that was broken for us, that by his chastisement, the peace that is upon us now is because of His body that was broken. And the forgiveness and the intimacy that we have with God today is by His blood. Now, I, want you, I want to say something to you about communion. You need to take communion on a regular basis. I'll tell you this. Communion is powerful. 1 Corinthians 10 calls communion the cup of blessing. And I'll tell you why. Every single time you take communion, you're reminding God that you're in covenant with Him. And He gets all stirred up. Every time he sees a covenant sign, he becomes passionate. Ladies and gentlemen, if you need a healing, you can get it taking communion. If you need deliverance, if you're, if you're wanting a blessing, many times just the act of taking communion with God is such a powerful, powerful thing to release covenant blessings. Anybody believe what I'm saying this morning? It's, that's why we call it Holy Communion, ladies and gentlemen. It's Holy Communion. And the Apostle Paul says, this is a covenant sign. He says, I'm telling you what Jesus told me. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. Do this to remember me. Remember the covenant through this covenant sign. He says, however, now, if a person takes communion without rightly judging himself, you eat and drink judgment to yourself. Listen to what he says. The church at Corinth, they came to church and got drunk during communion. They served real wine during communion, and people would leave their homes and come to church just to get free wine. And then they get drunk at church. There's immorality. They had a lot of hatefulness going on. People abusing each other, suing each other in church. 
and stuff like that. This was a very immature church, and the Apostle Paul said, you know, when you come in and take communion and you're not willing to take responsibility for your behavior, the blessing that you could have had if you would have taken communion and taken responsibility for your sins, you don't have to be perfect. I've, every, every single time I've ever taken communion, I was dealing with something. I mean, I've, I've always had some sin or some issue in my life that I'm wrestling with, and I'm just telling you, but you know something? I wrestle with it. I don't give up. And I don't keep secrets with God. I know that He knows everything in my heart, so I just bring it right up to Him. And I come to Him. You don't have to be perfect, ladies and gentlemen, to serve God. Just sincere and honest. Just willing to come to Him. So anytime you take communion, all you've got to do is just say, God, I'm coming, I'm being honest, I'm dealing with this, I'm dealing with this, because I'm still committed to the covenant. Give me the, give me the power, Lord, to serve you the way I should. It's a done deal. But what about a person who's cheating on their wife or cheating on their husband or stealing money from their boss or they're hateful and they're unforgiving and they're, and they're this and they're that and they're sin in your life and you won't deal with it. And you come in and you take the covenant sign and you begin to abuse the covenant sign because you're not walking in an honest covenant relationship with God. Paul said to the Corinthian church, many among you are physically weak, many among you carry sicknesses, and some of you are dead because of communion. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's how serious this is. He's telling you, many of you, there are, there are people among you that have died, literally, because you did that. It's a phenomenal blessing if you do it with a covenant spirit with Christ. But if you just come into the house of God and you take communion without being willing to take responsibility, you're not perfect, I'm not perfect. It just means, but we're honest with God. We're honest about the relationship with God. We're sincerely seeking this relationship. And communion is a covenant sign of our relationship with God. It is a cup of blessing if you're honest and sincere. If you're not, it's a cup of judgment. Remember, God's different related to covenant signs. Very, very passionate when He sees a sign. So let me say this. There's a covenant that's available to all of us here this morning. And the covenant has three elements to it, and all are essential. There are the promises that we must believe. There is the blood that we must receive. And there are the signs that we must respect. And if we are willing to come into relationship with Him and do those things, though all of us are imperfect, we have the respect for the covenant that we have with Him. There are untold blessings waiting for us. There are untold wonders that God will release into your life. And I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, you have a new covenant with Jesus. It's fantastic. 